Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, staring down a sovereignty showdown. I'm just going to stay focused on the things that matter to Albertans. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith is set to release her promised Alberta Sovereignty Act this hour. Is it anti-Ottawa or just pro-province? We'll break down the political battle just coming up. And a big bank buyout. The Royal Bank of Canada has its sights set on HSBC's Canada unit. The sale still needs the approval of the finance minister, Christian Freeland. So how big can one bank get? We'll talk about the financial implications with our finance MPs. Plus... An Ontario court strikes down that province's limit on public wage, public sector wages and their increases. Bill 124 has been deemed unconstitutional. Before government legislation would have placed a 1% wage cap on hundreds of thousands of public sector workers. The government plans to appeal. We'll talk to one of the unions that fought that law. This is Power Play. Now let's get to the players. We're standing by for some big news from the Alberta legislature. Lieutenant Governor Salma Lakhani is delivering the premier, is delivering Premier Daniel Smith's first ever throne speech this hour. Now, one of Smith's key policy planks laid out in that next hour includes the controversial and already renamed Alberta Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act. The UCP leader says it'll give the province the authority to disregard federal laws that Alberta believes threaten its jurisdiction. We'll continue to watch this, and once the act is tabled, we'll head back to Alberta for reaction there. Now to the other big story we're following today in Canada's banking sector. The Royal Bank of Canada has announced it will buy the Canadian division of multinational bank HSBC. The deal is worth $13.5 billion. Now, HSBC has about $134 billion in assets in Canada with approximately 130 branches and 4,200 employees. RBC says it expects the deal to be finalized at the end of next year pending regulatory approval. Let's say Department of Finance released a statement saying the Superintendent of Financial Institutions Office and the Competition Bureau will review the deal and provide recommendations to the finance minister. The statement reads, The Minister of Finance will, make, will take into account such factors as the rights and interests of consumers and business customers, the impact of the transaction on the level of competition in the sector, its consequences for the stability and integrity of the financial sector, and public confidence in it. The statement goes on to say, the Minister of Finance has the authority to impose any terms and conditions to require any undertaking that she considers appropriate. Now, to help us break this all down, let's bring in BNN Bloomberg's John Ehrlichman. John, thanks for taking the time. Now, this is a seismic move. What does it mean for Canada's banking sector? Well, it definitely means, Mike, that the largest player in the industry gets a lot bigger. Now, it is true that for Royal Bank, this is a relatively small deal. It's surprising to say that, but here is HSBC, a business with 130 plus billion dollars worth of assets in Canada, very large. Well, guess what? In the case of Royal, they have roughly 1.8 trillion in assets. That's grown by a trillion dollars over the last decade. And Mike, today in making their case to Bay Street about whether or not there will be any hurdles in Ottawa, they talked about this being 
a, a relatively small deal, despite that $13.5 billion price tag. But you can expect, Mike, over the next few months, there will continue to be a a coordinated communication push by this bank to get Ottawa on board beyond the finance minister, the competition bureau, the banking regulator, everybody has to be on side. And so far, the commentary from uh, from those parties that have made uh, a comment, including the finance minister, it's been relatively brief and reminding us of the power they have to say yes or no. But given that you've already got the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, who is asking questions about this, undoubtedly, RBC will have to continue to make their case. Mike, another thing they tried to point out is their role within Canada already as a major corporate tax contributor, as a company that pays big dividends to investors, who, by the way, happen to be a lot of average Canadians. And also, they really pushed the idea that buying this bank which has sizable operations in BC and really in many ways is a gateway towards new Canadians coming from Asia, that they're going to hopefully play their part in helping Canada's economy to grow through immigration. But a lot of people are going to be watching very closely to see how things play out. It's why they're giving some time well into next year to try to get uh, all the approvals for this deal out of Ottawa. So I guess that's part of the case that they're trying to make and really make it more palatable for the government. It, it, it absolutely is. And, you know, what's interesting, Mike, is that we're so rarely talking about a Canadian bank acquiring another Canadian bank or, in this case, the very sizable assets of a foreign bank that operates within Canada. And that is because a lot of people will remember when you when there was an attempt in the past for the biggest players to consolidate, they often ran into turbulence in Ottawa. It's in recent years, what's been more common is to see Canadian banks look abroad. Actually, Bank of Montreal and TD likely at the end of the day found themselves out of the running in this deal because they're in the middle of still swallowing some massive transactions they recently pulled off south of the border. And I think that's the point. I mean, for Royal Bank, they saw an opportunity, an opportunity to get larger, to uh, basically uh, find new customers they can sell through. And why not do it if you can get it done and you've got the balance sheet that allows you to do it? They did try to make a point around... Um, uh, giving an opportunity for many of the employees that are already part of the HSBC operations in Canada to stay within the organization. But we're in the early innings here. And we're still not quite sure where that's going to go because a lot of the analysts on Bay Street, Mike, are saying, well, the great opportunity here for Royal Bank is actually to cut costs, whether that's back office or through technology. So that, too, can be a sensitive issue. But a lot of analysts on Bay Street said, well, look, if you've got the capital to do a deal like this, they don't come around every day in Canada. So why not give it a shot? But as you said, a lot to be played out there. BNN Bloomberg's John Ehrlichman, thanks so much for your insight tonight. We really appreciate that. Now, as we discussed, any big bank purchase is subject to government approval. Earlier today on Parliament Hill, in light of the RBC-HSBC deal, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh called for the powers of the Competition Bureau to be strengthened. So should Canadians be concerned about this proposed takeover? And does Canada's modest GDP growth that we'll get to in a moment indicate the country could be avoiding a recession? Let's ask our MPs. Joining me right now are Liberal Associate Finance Parliamentary Secretary Rachel Bendine, Conservative National Revenue Critic Adam Chambers, and NDP Finance Critic Daniel Blakey. Thank you all for being here. Ms. Bendine, I wanted to ask you, should Canadians be concerned about this deal and that it would mean less competition in the banking sector? Well, I think it, 
It's a very interesting uh, question, and, and as we just heard, we're in the very early uh, innings, I think it was described as, um, of the discussion. Uh, the Finance Minister will, of course, wait for the recommendations um, from the Competition Bureau. Uh, and as Canadians know, the Competition Bureau has in the past uh, been, been quite strict when it came uh, to the banking sector. And so we will certainly await uh, their recommendations and their advice to the Minister before making a final decision. Mr. Chambers, I want to ask you, the banking industry is so critical in Canada. So do you have any concerns about this acquisition? Well, it was just announced today. It was uh, not really a surprise. I think it was known that HSBC International was looking for a home for its mm -hmm. Canadian operations. Uh, you know, the question I think we ask ourselves is, at the end of this transaction, are Canadians... Uh, better off in terms of competition, what's going to happen to employees. Uh, these are questions that I expect the Competition Tribunal and OFSFI will uh, pursue, and, and then you know we'll be able to judge their analysis uh, and their recommendation to the government, and of course the minister holds the final, uh, the final opinion. These are questions that we should be asking, mm -hmm. of course, but we also need to think about, in a general sense, uh, are our large sectors, do they have enough competition in them already. You know, banking, telecom, you know, we saw another merger previously or a, a potential merger previously. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to be thinking about competition policy much more broadly than just one-off transactions at a time. Mr. Blake, I want to bring you in here. I mean, these two MPs are obviously keeping their powder dry, saying we have to look at it first, but your leader has already come out and said the Competition Bureau should block this. Why already? Well, I think the experience of most Canadians is that the banking sector is not already a very competitive sector. And so losing another player in a sector that's already known to be not a highly competitive sector where there aren't a lot of players, you know, we've got a handful of major banks in Canada. They get a lot of special treatment because of their because of the role that they that they, that they play in the economy and just having those few players get bigger and bigger does not put Canada on on it track mm -hmm. to pull away from the disadvantages that you have when you have an oligopoly in your major financial institutions. And so I think for us, it's, it's pretty clear that we're, we're already dealing with an industry where, there's a, where there is not enough competition. And this clearly is not a step in the right direction, which is why we think it's important that um, the appropriate authorities, you know, bring full uh, criticism to bear on this uh, deal and, and talk more about how we introduce more competition rather than less into, in, into an existing market. I want to shift to the GDP numbers that came out today. I believe we have them. We can put them on the screen. Uh, Statistics Canada showed um, that the Canadian economy grew by a modest 0.7% in the third quarter. The annualized real GDP rose by 2.9%. This growth marks the fifth consecutive quarterly increase. So I wanted to ask you, uh, Ms. Bendine, um, do you see this uh, as a cause for concern that we're heading towards a, re a recession, especially when you consider that the parliamentary budget officer was at the House Finance Committee yesterday and he said the government was not showing fiscal restraint. Well, I think the numbers are positive. But Mike, if you look at uh, the number for the last quarter, it was at 3.2% uh, of GDP increase. Now it's at 29 uh, I think, you know, this is important growth. And, you know, just to break it down, this is what ensures good 
paying jobs for Canadians and at a time of global economic stability, that's a very good thing. Canada um, uh, has uh, among the highest growth among G7 countries. I think we're only second to the United States um, while having the lowest deficit in the G7. So with respect to the, the PBO's comments, um, respectfully, I, I would say uh, that, you know, he even predicted a, a lower uh, deficit than we did in the fall economic statement. I think uh, our numbers, frankly, speak for themselves. Canada has a triple A credit rating. We see um, also in StatsCan's numbers um, that business investment uh, has, has similarly increased. Uh, it means that investors around the world see Canada as a prudent and credible um, place to invest. And that ultimately it benefits Canadians and Canadian workers. I'm going to have a feeling that Mr. Chambers may disagree with this. I'll bring you in here. Well, the parliamentary budget officer was quite clear yesterday. 30% annualized spending growth, if you compare this year's spending growth to pre-COVID levels, it isn't necessarily, uh, by any measure, uh, fiscal restraint or spending mm -hmm. restraint. Uh, we are going to enter a period where even the government's numbers, uh, in terms of projected GDP growth, is going to hover around zero for the next couple quarters. Um, thank goodness we have a strong uh, oil and gas and commodities uh, resource-based sector that's carrying Canada through this economic uncertainty. I think that's a good thing for the country that we have the growth in that sector to keep us through in government revenues and taxes, etc. Uh, but it is clear we are entering a period of uncertainty. And so we have said, we've called on the government to say, as we're entering economic uncertainty, we should be really careful and think twice before we raise taxes on anybody, businesses or people, as we head into this economic uncertainty, because most people are anxious now. We had a couple strong years of growth coming out of COVID, but now it's really going to be uh, difficult for some individuals as we enter the next couple quarters. Mr. Blakey, do you think the priority should be on preventing a recession or really trying to sort of cut back on inflationary spending? Well, I mean, I think that the emphasis has to be on trying to support people through a really difficult economic time. And we can lose sight of that sometimes in the way that we interpret GDP numbers. So another thing that the PBO said at committee yesterday was when you when you look at the dental benefit, when you look at the Canada housing benefit, when you look at the doubling of the GST rebate, all things that the NDP has pushed the government to do, um, those are things that are not inflationary spending. And so there are ways that government can spend in order to support Canadians that don't contribute meaningfully to inflation. And so it's important that government be looking for those opportunities to support people through what is going to be a challenging economic time, notwithstanding whatever today's numbers are on GDP. The question is, you know, what is that going to be over the next few months? And when we do see GDP growth, how is that distributed? Because that can be big banks making more money uh, in the context of GDP growth without Canadian households really feeling the benefit of that. So our job, and we believe that the job of government should be to stay focused on people and make sure that they have the resources that they need to get through these challenges times. And on the larger economic conversation, there's also lots to say. I mean, we do think that there's a role, for instance, when we talk about tackling climate change, mm -hmm. for government to be making investments that both create more resilient climate infrastructure for the purposes of trade, but also that create good jobs for folks to be able to be trained into and help support their families. So yes, there is work for the government to do in terms of 
pushing the economy in a better direction and, and, and putting an emphasis on the right kinds of growth. But there's definitely a job. We can't do that at the expense of leaving people behind in difficult economic circumstances. And there are ways that targeted government investments can help without contributing further to inflation. In less than a minute, Ms. Bendine, how do you do that, considering it seems like the margin right now, especially if your GDP is so razor thin, to make sure that you don't push Canada into some sort of a recession? By focusing on, on targeted investments uh, that will help uh, the Canadians that need it most. That's why we really focus our energies on, on, on supporting vulnerable Canadians, on ensuring that they can uh, make the end of the month. And, and when the NDP, you know, talks about how GDP numbers are, are not that important, I, I would just remind them that we've also seen wages increase annualized year over year at, at about 5.5%. And so that, that is significant. You know, the ability for Canadians uh, to meet the, the, the moment, um, uh, with the, the, the money that they get from, you know, from their jobs is, mm -hmm. is of critical importance to us. And, and that's why I think today's GDP numbers are a very positive sign. And I, I know that the markets will, will react to that positivity as, as we see investment continue to pour into Canada. And we'll continue to watch that. Rachel Bendine, Adam Chambers, Mr. Blakey, Daniel Blakey, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Now to another story now on a court decision that's coming out of Canada's most populous province. The Ontario Superior Court struck down a controversial bill that limited wages for public sector workers. A decision today said that Bill 124 infringed on the rights of freedom of association and collective bargaining. The Ontario government has already responded with a short statement saying, we are reviewing the decision. Our intent is to appeal. Bill 124 came into effect in 2019 and limited wage increases to 1% a year for three years. The move is being celebrated today by unions in this province, including Unifor. Let's now bring in Unifor Regional Director Noreen uh, Rizivi. Hi, Noreen. Thanks so much for joining us today. I wanted to start with your reaction to the decision today. Well, listen, I, it was a great uh, victory for Ontario's workers, um, and it's a great victory for Ontarians in general uh, when the Superior Court, uh, you know, uh, validates that this was a violation to our charter rights, uh, our violation to free collective bargaining. That's a pretty big deal. Uh, it's unfortunate that the government has come out so quickly to say they have uh, they have intention to appeal. But nevertheless, this is a pretty big victory for us today. So I'm really, really happy about this. I know Unifor is calling on the government not to appeal the decision. We've already seen, though, in that statement that that is their intention. How do you respond to that right out of the gate so early, even though you are disappointed? I mean, beyond the disappointment. Beyond the disappointment, I think, you know, uh, my response to the government will be this. Um, you know, appealing a decision of the Superior Court that has just validated that it was a complete unconstitutional bill uh, I think that, you know, that says a lot for a government that turns around and says, no, we don't actually agree with that. And I don't, you know, at some point, this government's going to have to figure out that they can't govern uh, invoking notwithstanding clauses, uh, putting, you know, uh, forward bills that strip workers and Ontarians of their rights. Um, they, you know, in their first term, they put Bill 124 in. In their second term, they tried to uh, put Bill 28 that was, uh, that stripped workers uh, of their rights to, uh, you know, uh, free collective bargaining and uh, the right to strike. And in both uh, attempts, you know, here we are. One that the Superior Court has turned around and said is unconstitutional. The second one, we actually fought back and won. And so I think that, you know, it's time this government pays attention to what the courts are saying, to what labor is saying, to what workers are saying, and to what Ontarians are saying, which is leave our charter of rights and freedoms alone and govern 
without in, without stripping workers of these rights. In about the last 45 seconds that I have here, Unifor Canada says it will be seeking remedies for affected members. What exactly are you seeking? So what we did uh, when this bill was first introduced is at every uh, table, a bargaining table, we actually uh, bargained language that said, if this bill is struck down by the superior courts, that we have the right to go back and open those collective agreements and, uh, you know, renegotiate wages. And so that's exactly what, uh, you know, our intention uh, will be. And um, and I, I, I do hope that the you know, government rethinks their position on uh, appealing this decision because at the end of the day, uh, healthcare workers, education workers, social services, you can't, you can't have a 1% wage increase, uh, in the face of inflation and after going through a pandemic and, you know, putting yourself in harm's way. It's just not sustainable right now when inflation is what it is. And, you know, we're losing healthcare workers by the droves. Uh, we're seeing our healthcare system literally collapse. They need to invest into our public sectors. They need to invest into healthcare. They need to invest into the education system and they need to in- invest into the people that take care of us, that educate us, that take care of, uh, Ontarians, uh, through public service. Unifor's Noreen Rizvi, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Still to come, cracking down on protests in China. Chinese authorities attempt to snuff out anti-lockdown protests, which continue to spread right across that country. How far are both demonstrators and the government willing to go? We'll get the latest from Beijing when PowerPlay returns. Canadians uh, are watching very closely. Uh, Obviously, everyone in China uh, should be allowed to express themselves, uh, should be allowed to uh, share their their perspectives uh, and, uh, indeed, protest. We're going to continue to ensure uh, that China knows we'll stand up for human rights, we'll stand uh, with people who are expressing themselves. Uh, We also need to make sure that China and places around the world are respecting journalists and their ability to do their job. Uh, We'll continue to make that very clear. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau res- responding to China's crackdown on anti-lockdown protests across that country. Demonstrators have taken to the streets in the biggest show of civil disobedience in decades. Chinese authorities have erased restrictions somewhat or eased restrictions somewhat, but they're showing no sign of abandoning their zero-COVID strategy. Protests against the Chinese government are also popping up here in Canada. China's ambassador to Canada, Kong Pu, gave a speech at the University of Ottawa yesterday where he criticized Canada's newly released Indo-Pacific strategy. At that speech, the blinds were lowered in the room to block the views of a campus protest against China's treatment of Uyghurs. Joining me now is Chuck Kwan. He's a former chair of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. Thank you so much for being with us. I wanted to start off and ask you, what goes through your mind when you see the footage of the mass anti-lockdown protests in China? I think it's more like Tiananmen Square 2.0. I'm afraid that uh, uh, we're going to have a long and expensive kind of protest around the country. pretty much like what we have seen about 33 years ago in 1989 during Tiananmen Square. Uh, the only thing we are hoping for is that tanks won't be sent in to quell the uh, protests uh, like what we did 
in Tiananmen Square. Do you think that there is that their efforts, um, even though being met with this force, do you think that they're having an impact? Um, I I think it will. Uh, if from a, a government point of view, I think they will probably start listening to the protesters and maybe ease some more restrictions. Uh, however, um, I think the protesters are, are certainly right to express their anger. Uh, don't forget, zero COVID policy has never been a good public health policy. And in some ways, um, China is using that zero COVID policy to further uh, and, uh, control the dissent among the Chinese people. And what we are seeing today is that you are dealing with an issue that affects everyone, not just the students in Tiananmen Square, but affects, uh, you know, being locked down. And by lockdown in Chinese definition means there's a padlock in your front door from the outside. So you cannot get out of the house, pretty much like what happened in the fire in Urumuchi. Just incredible scenes that we're seeing there. And I just wanted to shift gears for a moment to Canada's new Indo-Pacific strategy. And it does see the government take on a harder line on China. Do you think that this right. new policy has enough teeth um, for Canada to really get tough on China? Well, a strategy is still a strategy. Without implementation, is a, a, I, I believe, is a toothless uh, uh, vehicle. However, I'm happy to see that... Uh, Domestic political interference, meaning Chinese influence into Canadian politics, is in the uh, strategy as one of the uh, many pronged uh, kind of defense and 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 uh, of the initiative. Uh, besides the usual trade, human rights, and uh, labor rights, and all that, so uh, I think it's finally waking up. Uh, the strategy is a little bit too late. We're trying to catch up with the other nations, particularly the U.S. and Australia, who uh, has have shown, uh, 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 Australia particularly, has a strong and very quiet leadership into confronting China for, from way five, six years back. Uh, they have instituted a uh, foreign uh, agent registration, which Canada has yet to, to register. And for years now, we've been pressing RCMP and the PMO about the internal threats uh, here in Canada from Chinese government. And uh, we have so far met with deaf years. I'm finally happy to see that at least that this is now recognizing the strategy. Chuck Kwan, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. We appreciate it. Thank you. Now is, here is some other news you need to know as the war in Ukraine enters its first full winter. NATO allies gathered in Romania, including Canada, pledging continued support in the pushback against Russia. We will make sure that we continue to support Ukraine through tough winter months. And at the same time, we'll make sure that the Putin regime is held accountable. We want to make sure that there is strong procurement working amongst allies. Uh, we've just announced more funding also to Ukraine to provide artillery, and we will do so. We will do so. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie there saying that the goal is to reinforce Ukraine's position on the ground through military aid, intelligence sharing, and financial support. At the Bucharest meeting, NATO member countries have pledged 
more military support for Ukraine, as well as financial and non-lethal aid. An official with Qatar's World Cup organization has put the number of worker deaths leading up to the tournament at four to 500. The figure is much higher than any previously offered by Qatari officials. Tens of thousands of migrant workers built the soccer stadiums, transportation lines, and new infrastructure in sweltering heat, which prompted criticism, intense, uh, intense criticism of human rights groups. And King Charles's three-day visit to Canada in May ended up costing taxpayers $1.4 million. Charles, who was still the Prince of Wales at the time, and his wife, the Duchess of Cornwall, visited Newfoundland, Ottawa, and the Northwest Territories. The $1.4 million works out to roughly $25,000 for every hour the couple spent on Canadian soil. It does not include government, military, or police salaries. Still to come, Afghan refugees stuck in Pakistan's tent city. With winter on the way, 57 families brace themselves without the barest of necessities. CTV's Genevieve Beauchemin has the latest from Islamabad. Stay right there. Power Play will be right back. They fled Taliban rule in Afghanistan, and now 57 Afghan families have spent nearly a year living in a tent city in Pakistan. Where is international support for refugees facing an uncertain future and the absolute, absolute barest of necessities? CTV's Genevieve Beauchemin has the latest from Islamabad. So we're right here in the heart of Islamabad, and this is one of two tent cities that have been set up in parks. In this particular one here, there are 57 families of Afghan refugees who've been here for about eight to 10 months, and they're living in these tents that you're seeing behind me. And they're living, there's so many children here, entire families, they have nowhere else to go. They have no paperwork, they're not registered with the UNHCR, they have very little food, very little money, and these are their homes, and they're not sure what the future holds for them. Now, in these tents, it's very, very basic needs. There are beds set up. Um, they have water that they get about a 15-minute walk from here. So they carry these jugs, and they go to a local mosque here to get their water, and that's where they also shower when uh, the local authorities allow them to do that. They're very desperate for any help that they can get. Some of them had a very different life in Afghanistan. One of them was a school teacher, Susan, school principal. And another one is a teaching the students here. She learned English through a Canada fund and she is here. And we were in her tent a few minutes ago and all the children, very, very young children gather around her and they sing their ABCs. They want to learn how to speak English. They're desperate to do that, desperate that someone will come to help them. Now, it's estimated there's about 3 million Afghan refugees here in this country. Uh, many of them have been here since way before uh, the Taliban t take over, but many of these people here have only been here for a few months, and now there's winter that's coming. They will be very cold. Very many of them say they have very few blankets, and this is their lives now. Genevieve Boschmay, CTV News, Islamabad.
coming up. Canada's new Indo-Pacific strategy is finally out. After years of waiting, is Canada left playing catch-up in the region? Canada's former UN ambassador joins our press gallery next on Power Play. The government's long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy was finally unveiled to the public this weekend, and we've had some time to digest it. But let's have a look at the highlights once again. Canada will commit $2.3 billion over five years to bolster Canada's role in that region. About $240 million will go towards increasing trade. Nearly $500 million will boost Canada's naval and military presence in that part of the world. And over $900 million is earmarked for sustainability and climate change projects. The Indo-Pacific strategy sees Canada taking a tougher stance on China, to which Beijing has already taken issue with over with Canada. So can Canada successfully shore up its trade ties in the region while sidelining the economic powerhouse that is China? Let's bring in the press gallery panel to weigh in. We have Bob Fife. He is the Globe and Mail's parliamentary bureau chief. Fatima Sayed is the reporter for the Narwhal. And our special guest is Louise Blay, the former Canadian ambassador to the UN. She's now an advisor to the Business Council of Canada and the Pendleton Group. Nice to have you all here. I wanted to start with you, Ms. Blay. For Canada's business sector... How important is having the federal government's Indo-Pacific strategy? And for viewers at home who don't really understand the significance of the strategy, how important is it for Canada to tap into the Asian market? Well, first of all, it's always great to have clarity. Uh, clarity for the, for the business community uh, makes all the difference in the world. This is an important region, and it's the fastest growing economic region in the world. Six of the 13 countries that are included in the strategies really represent 50% of our exports and, and, and partners, economic partners. So it was really important to finally get this piece right, to get it clear. But I think what the business community is going to be expecting now is a more information about the implementation. We need to know how this will be unrolled, what it will actually mean. For example, there's a, there's a gateway strategy. We need to know, what does that mean? What, how is this really actually going to work? But overall, the clarity that this final, finally getting this strategy out brings is, is I think, very, very welcome by the business community. Bob, I wanted to bring you in. I mean, how much of an economic counterbalance can Canada have to China, considering how much of a powerhouse it is in that region? Well, we actually don't do much trade with China. It's about 4%. China does more trade with us. Mm -hmm. But uh, the business community in Western countries are all beginning to reassess their their uh, uh, trade ties with, with China um, because they find it more and more difficult to do business there. Right. And... Um, you know, there were, and, the, and the pandemic uh, highlighted the uh, supply chain issues that we have. And so uh, the United States and Europe and Canada are, and Australia are looking to other countries in the region that, um, that they believe can provide the supply chains that they want and open new trade routes. And one of the things that's really good that I like about the Indo-Pacific strategy is finally a recognition that India is an important player, 1.2 billion people. Shocking it's, that it's taken this long. It, yeah, and they're going to have uh, trillions of dollars of in the next 10 years or so, an economy that's going to be extremely uh, 
a big economy mm -hmm. and that can Canadian businesses really have to look to India now and, and the government seems to be encouraging them to do so. So that is actually a good thing. We're still going to trade with China as we have to. I right. mean, they want our, they want our uh, raw resources and our agricultural goods. But, um, you know, Canadian business has to have to look elsewhere just because of China's growing aggressiveness. Right. Fatima, I wanted to bring you in here. This strategy comes after allies like the U.S. have already taken a harder line on China. Is this strategy just a little too little too late? I mean, we have been expecting it for many years, so perhaps. Um, look, we are behind, um, and, but I think it is interesting because uh, Canada usually takes a very multilateral collaborative approach on the global world stage, um, and this is different. Um, you know, it indicates a, a tougher stance, a tougher relationship. At the same time, this strategy is scant on details. Um, you know, I was looking at for energy specifically as a climate reporter and, and what Canada is trying to do with... Um, with the trade of, of clean energy and so forth. And, and the word that keeps coming up is they want to be a reliable partner um, for, for China and for India when it comes to energy. We don't know what that means. You know, it sounds like Canada is pitching itself as the solution and the, you know, the, the reliable friend at a time of great chaos uh, when it comes to the energy industry. Um, but what does that mean for Canada's climate goals? What exactly will we be exporting, importing? What are we selling to Canada? China? What are we trading with them? Um, I, I'd love to see more details on that. Yeah, in, in that vein, Ms. Blay, the Associated Press is reporting that China is looking to forge closer partnership with Russia when it comes to energy. Now, the Business Council of Canada wanted a larger commitment to energy security in the region, in the Indo-Pacific strategy. So was this a missed opportunity for Canada? Well, just to, to address this issue of this partnership between China and, and Russia on energy, look, it's not surprising to hear that uh, China is going to double down. Uh, they're the biggest uh, importer of energy in the world, and crude oil in particular. Uh, now they're getting it, <laughs> you know, it's, they're getting it at a lower price because of the, the war and the aggressive, aggressive war into Ukraine by, by Russia. So this should not surprise us. What we have to think about is what are we going to do as a country to secure our own energy sources? And furthermore, how are we going to use the strength that we have in certain sectors that have been underdeveloped, like LNG, for example, to really be uh, use it at leverage, as a leverage in our relationship in uh, with our allies? Let's face it, this is now it's all about economic security. It's all about uh, energy security and Canada has a role to play and our partners are expecting us to play that role. And the question is, uh, what are we going to do to reduce the regulatory framework that make it so difficult to make those major important investment in the sector in Canada? And uh, our allies are answer. right on that. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Ms. Blay. Bob, take that. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, Ms. Blay, that you're absolutely right on that. I, uh, Japan and uh, North Korea, or sorry, South Korea, and, um, uh, and India all want to buy Canadian liquefied natural gas. It is, I mean, it's a way, they're burning coal, mm -hmm. and they would rather not burn coal. They want clean energy, and they want a reliable country that supplies it, not somebody like Russia, which you right. never know are going to turn off the tap. So that's an important thing. And for, from Canada's point of view, with, with India, for example, they're, I did not realize that they provide 40% of their en energy is from solar. So we've got lots of things to learn from right. India as well, how they use, uh, how they are adapting quickly to so solar energy.
And Fatima, pick up on that. I know you're talking about how, as, as somebody who's watching sort of the environmental file, um, how keen are you to see that side of it as well? I mean, look, there, there are positives and negatives here, right? On the one hand, there could be a trading of interesting renewable energy uh, knowledge and technology. On the other hand, you know, uh, it does feel a little contradictory to be talking about exporting LNG when uh, Canada is also trying to still meet its climate commitments. And, you know, what does that mean for our emission? What does it mean for energy supply here at home? You know, we're, we're in Ontario right now, which is trying to, you know, fill gaps in nuclear power, for example, um, with natural gas. You know, is there a federal um, participation in that conversation to happen uh, across the country? So for me, there's just too many unanswered questions right now. Um, and, and I'd love for the government to, to give us more details on what exactly this energy conversation between two of the world's largest countries and Canada looks like. Fatima and Bob, you're sticking around for our next round. I want to thank Louise Blay for joining us. We really appreciate your insight into this matter. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. Coming up, the Alberta legislature opens up with the Alberta Sovereignty Act at the top of the agenda. But can Premier Smith make her sovereignty case to Albertans and the rest of the country? The press gallery will stay here and dig into that when we return. Act that's going to say we're going to cherry pick which laws apply to which federal laws apply in Alberta um, is some sort of opt out clause that doesn't exist in our federation. And look, I grew up in the Lougheed era when I saw Premier Lougheed, you know, take swipes at the federal government over legitimate grievances that the province had. And the Prime Minister of the day worked it out with the Premier of the day, but inside the context of a strong uh, federation and a stronger Canada. And uh, my appeal to the Premier and to her ministers is let's work together. Alberta sovereignty within a united Canada. That's the promise from Premier Daniel Smith in her government's first bill kicking off the session at the Alberta legislature. But can the Premier and her government sell Albertans and the rest of Canada on her Alberta sovereignty? Smith says this act will, this will act as a constitutional shield to protect Albertans from federal policies or laws that attack the province's economy or rights. So how will that sovereignty look like in Alberta? And will the federal government play ball? Let's bring back our press gallery. Joining me once here again is Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail, Bob Fife, reporter from the Narwhal, Fatima Sayed, and Canada's National Observer's lead columnist, Max Fawcett. Thank you for joining us. Max, I wanted to start with you and get your reaction to the throne speech. What are you looking for in the Sovereignty Act legislation that we're expected to hear more about in the next few moments. Yeah, I was looking to see where the placement was uh, in the throne speech. Would it be the first thing out of the lieutenant governor's mouth? Would it, would it, you know, where would it fall in the order of priorities? And I think, as you said, we're going to find out the details momentarily. But the fact that it took 20 minutes before it was really covered in the speech says a lot. Uh, I think the premier sounds like she's pulling her punches here uh, even more than we were expecting. And... I think that you know that is a that is a reflection of the the widespread unpopularity of the idea of a sovereignty act outside of her her very sort of hardcore base, and, and the fact that people are more concerned about other things right now affordability, the cost of living, 
these were all things that were much more prominent uh, in the lieutenant governor's speech. And I think quite, quite intelligently, uh, th those are the things that people care about. Not picking more fights with Ottawa, I guess we'll see exactly what the Sovereignty Act uh, legislation text looks like. But, you know, th th to, to use a, a very Western metaphor, this is an attempt by the premier to ride two horses with one derriere. That's uh, not an easy thing to pull off. And, and she may have she may have decided it's too difficult to even attempt. Yeah, very few people can pull that off. Uh, Bob, you've watched provinces try and put Ottawa on notice before. What kind of challenges does Danielle Smith face here? Well, uh, look, um, it's not she's not that popular in the province right now. Right. And I'm not sure that people who are, uh, you know, wanting to work and are struggling with cost of living things, inflation, are really going to be very interested in somebody picking fights with Ottawa. And the prime minister, I thought, was effective today in saying, look, we're not, basically he, his approach was, I'm going to focus on the economy. I'm going to focus on cost of living stuff. Mm. I'm not interested in picking fights with Alberta. She will, she might very well, though, be pushed by, uh, as Max said, her hardcore supporters to, to, to get into more fights with Ottawa. I'm not sure that's necessarily going to play that well. But whatever the case is, um, if she picks a fight, she's going to have to go the route of the courts. And Alberta has not had a very strong track record mm -hmm. in fighting Ottawa in the courts. So she could, you know, take the government to court over, I don't know, oil and gas emissions or whatever, and the courts could throw it out and where she left, uh, a loser. Yeah. And I'm not sure that that's an effective one when you're six months away from an election campaign, but we'll see. Yeah, Fatima, speak to that. I mean, she does, uh, she is going to basically put herself in front of voters soon. So do you think that that is the reason why that maybe that language in, in the throne speech, as Max had just pointed out, was maybe a little more muted than others had expected? Yeah, I definitely think that's that has a strong um reason why she's doing this and i can't get the image max just put in our heads uh, out of my brain so <laughs> i'm gonna be thinking i don't about think that anybody can and, and really max we all appreciate that but um, go ahead fatima but, sorry but listen the main thing is that you know this is an exhausting playbook right it, political and policy divisions are good and and necessary for a healthy democracy to thrive and survive but uh to use that as a way to destroy the very foundation on which the country is built on is not constructive, it's not helpful, and it's not a winning playbook. We've seen provinces try this time and again where, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll use the federal government as, they'll make the federal government an enemy, rather, and uh, instead of actually pitching alternative policy ideas that might actually appeal to their base and also be constructive additions to, to their, you know, political portfolio. Um, here in Ontario, Doug Ford did that when he came to power, um, you know, by, by attacking the carbon pricing. We saw other provinces fall suit, and, you know, years later, now they, they're all pitching their own climate plans. It doesn't work. You can't destroy the foundation of a country to win, you know, a few years of in power. Um, I think, you know, there needs to be a serious recalibration of how politicians are using this. I do. It works just, well Just Quebec. a second. It, yeah, true. <laughs> well, stick around, guys. The act has just been tabled. We're going to play a clip. Have a listen to this and we'll come right back to you introduce the Alberta Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act. Mr. Speaker, this legislation is designed to be a constitutional shield to protect Albertans from unconstitutional federal laws and policies that harm our province's economy or violate Alberta's provincial rights. 
To be clear, it was devised to be respectful of court decisions and indigenous and treaty rights. By restoring and respecting the constitutional rights of our creative and diverse provinces, including Alberta, Canada will become stronger, more prosperous, and more unified than ever. With that, Mr. Speaker, I move first reading of Bill 1, the Alberta Sovereignty Within the United Canada Act. Honourable members, the Honourable the Premier has moved and asked to request leave to introduce Bill 1, the Alberta Sovereignty... So there it is, Max. I want to bring you in first here. You just heard it as she introduced it, saying that it would be respectful of court decisions and First Nations treaties. How important is that language in there? Well, at least it speaks to the fact that she's grappling with reality here. Uh, you know, all of the chiefs of Alberta's treaty nations have come out and said they don't want any part of this, that, that they don't consent to this idea of an Alberta Sovereignty Act. So you know, that at least acknowledges their opposition. But, you know, I think to Bob's point earlier, if this is going to be settled in the courts, the courts have not been kind to Alberta in the last few years. I mean, they're the Washington generals of constitutional jurisprudence. They lose every time they get on the court. And, you know, I'm honestly not clear on how what she's tabling is going to change anything in that respect. You, the province can't assert its way to better court outcomes. It has to argue its way there. And it's not clear to me that this is going to change anything. Uh, you know, the question for Danielle Smith and her advisors is, will more losing in, in the courts help them win at the ballot box next year? I, I can't really see the, the calculus there, but they clearly need to do something to appease her base uh, lest they, they fracture the, the, the unity in the United Conservative Party and, and basically hand the NDP a repeat of what happened in 2015. So we've got two horses with one derriere, the Washington generals. Max, you're going to need a trifecta to finish out this panel in just a second, but I'm going to go to Bob for a second. Um, how does the government respond to this here in Ottawa, do you think, other than what we've seen from the prime minister? Well, I think that uh, the government has wisely not going to play into the huffing and puffing from Danielle Smith. Uh, I'm going to blow your house down. They're not going to play with uh, yeah. that. They're going to be reasonable. It seems to me the way they've been reacting is they're going to be reasonable and saying that we want to work with Alberta. And if there are issues that we can, we'll try to resolve through negotiations. But if you want to take us to court, all the power to you. Um, but it hasn't been a very successful strategy for Alberta to go yeah. that route. And, um, you know, with an election coming and the NDP leader being fairly uh, popular and one who has tried and has successfully worked with Ottawa in the past, there's going to be a real contrast here. So we'll see if she can rile up her base uh, and that will be enough for her. But I'm not, I'm not sure that Albertans are in that kind of a mood for that kind of a strategy. But I don't live in the province and I don't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I don't feel comfortable enough of talking about how yeah. Albertans themselves would feel about it. Fat, I'm going to give you one more chance to weigh in here. Bob has just invoked the three little pigs. I don't know if you're going to say Goldilocks now because this is not too hot, not too cold, but I just wanted you to get your last dig in here. Well, I mean, I think the big challenge of, of our times is, you know, how do dissenting, you know, jurisdictions actually work together on issues? Um, I think we've been struggling with that in the aftermath of the pandemic. And I don't have a fun metaphor for, for you tonight. I'm sorry, but really, you know, the, the, <laughs> the big... The big question is, uh, you know, how does the federal government actually deal with this when it's got Alberta, it's got Saskatchewan, it's got Quebec, all saying that they're unhappy and they want to leave, um, yet at the same time they want to remain part of Canada 
it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, so, so I think we need some, you know, political minds to get together and, and tell us how do we get out of this and how do we, you know, work together if that's even possible at this moment in time. Speaking of political minds, Bob, Fatima, and Max, stick around. We're going to bring in a voice from the legislature, Alberta NDP finance critic Shannon Phillips. Uh, she's on standby at the legislature, waiting to get a look at that Alberta sovereignty within a United Canada Act. Welcome, Ms. Phillips. Uh, we've seen it now tabled. I don't know if you've actually seen the full um, language of it, but what are you anticipating for what you will see in the full act? Well, I think what we have here is a recipe for more chaos and more conflict. And, uh, you know, uh, Daniel Smith says that we need a constitutional shield. I would argue that the constitutional shield is the Constitution. And what we need to be focusing on here is uh, uh, creating a more stable, predictable environment for people to be able to access health care, to be able to make investments, uh, uh, to be able to create jobs in this province. These are all things that are desperately needed. Those are the kinds of things that, that, are, that require government bandwidth right now. If we've learned anything uh, over the last hour and a half of the, the speech from the throne and then the introduction of this piece of legislation, it's that Daniel Smith is not listening to the vast majority of Albertans who have asked her uh, to focus on rebuilding our healthcare system, on uh, a welcoming in, in new investment, and in fact, is doubling down on, on some of the most extreme ideas that got her into the Premier's chair. I wanted to ask how the Alberta NDP is actually going to respond to this, not just in the legislature, but I'm assuming um, that, that you guys may be, as you ramp up for an election, I mean, you might be preparing ads around this as we speak. Well, you know, election or no, what Albertans want is a government that is focused on its own brief, which is the things that uh, uh, that Albertans have said over and over and over again that they want their government uh, to uh, to respond to and to be substantive and thoughtful about. And those are things like affordability, uh, uh, rebuilding our healthcare system. But none of the prescriptions that we saw either in the speech from the throne or in introducing this act help us. They don't get us anywhere further with this. The affordability measures that came out uh, last week from the Smith government are, are partial at best. They are uh, a fiscal train wreck, frankly. Uh, they have said variously that they're going to cost 2.4 or 2.8 billion. Maybe there's more to come. The government really doesn't know if they're coming or going on this, and it's it's not a substantive plan to help Albertans through this 40-year high inflation. Not at all. Uh, it's just a recipe for more more chaos and and some time limited election-focused uh, help for Albertans. There's, there's better ways to do this. One of the first ways is to actually focus on those fundamentals, how we're going to reinvest the surplus, uh, how we're going to build a more resilient economy, rather than these sideshows of the Sovereignty Act, which in fact does exactly the opposite of what uh, uh, they, they say it intends, which is to ensure that we have a stable uh, business environment, that we have business certainty, um, these sorts of, of uh, uh, you know, essentially unconstitutional masses that are that have been created by uh, the Smith government are just, you know, leading us in the opposite direction to where we need to be. So we continue to watch there. I think you can see um, in that uh, the bottom corner there of your screen, we are waiting for Daniel Smith and Tyler Shandro uh, to speak to reporters about this. In the meantime, uh, Ms. Phillips, I wanted to ask you, you know, while your legislature will be dealing with this, how does the NDP try and get things 
back on track in terms of looking at the affordability crisis and making sure that this government addresses that rather than this type of act when you consider that this is being tabled today? Well, you know, over the last uh, three years, uh, the Alberta NDP has uh, engaged on a project called, called Alberta's Future. We've talked to over 250,000 Albertans in some way, shape, or form through that process. We've developed a number of different strategies, whether it's around uh, clean tech and innovation, whether it's around hydrogen strategy, or, or the many, many other strengths that the Alberta economy has. Now, those are, you know, pretty dense policy pieces and uh, uh, certainly are, are, are part of the heavy lifting of building a resilient economy for Alberta's uh, you know, future and, and to ensure that people want to stay here, that they want to raise their families here, that they want to make investments here. So we're going to continue to work on those uh, uh, projects. We think that's a really important uh, thing to really focus our energy on the economy and, and uh, that's why we uh, asked uh, retired HEB chief economist Todd Hirsch to give us advice on how to invest surplus, uh, because that is something that Albertans should be seeing uh, uh, more action in terms of the, the quality of their daily life, their access to health care, their uh, access to uh, good quality education, post-secondary. Uh, all of those things should be affected by the planning that we put in place now. We are not seeing that, sadly, from the Smith government. These folks are running around from pillar to post. Uh, they're just sort of throwing spaghetti at the wall, whatever, you know, kind of comes to mind in the speech from the throne. They just indicated that, oh, you know, there might be more on the way. This is billions and billions of dollars without any thoughtful or substantive plan behind it. There's no pragmatism. There's no fiscal responsibility. There's no anchors here. So I, I think you're going to hear us talk a lot more about that. We've got an investment framework uh, uh, that is moving out very soon. Uh, a really important speech that Rachel Notley will be making to the Calgary Chamber uh, uh, coming up uh, uh, very soon here. You know, we're focused on what Albertans are telling us matters to them, which is healthcare and affordability. Uh, and we're doing it in a really serious and substantive way. We don't mind getting up in the morning and going to work. But given that, I guess what I'm trying to get at as a question is between now and the election, what can you do as an opposition party to make sure other than, uh, you know, trying to, you know, raise this kind of a ruckus in the legislature, what can you do to make sure that the focus remains on the affordability crisis rather than this act? Well, you know, I think what this act shows us is that the government is deeply, deeply committed to uh, extremist side projects that are doing nothing uh, uh, to help our economic growth and they're in fact hindering it. We've already heard uh, from business organizations who have said that even the threat of the Sovereignty Act will lead to more chaos and uncertainty and an uncertain business climate. So the, the fact of the matter is, is that we need to keep the focus on what actually constitutes a thoughtful plan for Alberta's future and our future economic resilience. And that's what we're going to be focused on, and that's why we've been so vociferous in our opposition to the Sovereignty Act, including just voting against Bill 1, uh, or sorry, the uh, uh, first reading, which is something that's very, very rarely done in a parliamentary system. We're doing that because this is a bad idea for uh, Alberta's economy. There's a reason why, you know, the vast majority of Albertans oppose this legislation. There's a reason why business groups have uh, spoken out time and time again. There's a reason why Jason Kenney himself has uh, opposed this and a number of Daniel Smith's own ministers. And the reason for that is that it is it does nothing to solve the real problems that, are, that Alberta's 
all are apparently everyone in Alberta is focused on except for, you know, a small group of people surrounding Danielle Smith. Alberta NDP finance critic Shannon Phillips. We're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. I'm going to bring back Max and Bob. Um, you know, when you hear, uh, Max, what uh, Shannon Phillips said there about how they're going to try and get things uh, still focused and that this is a sideshow, that uh, even, you know, a lot of the cabinet, Jason Kenney uh, had called, I believe uh, he called uh, catastrophically idiotic. Um, I, I may be misquoting him, but I'm sure that you've got a better, uh, better line to come up with. But Max, you know, when you consider the support that she may or may not have within her own caucus on this act, I mean, what does the road forward look like? Well, the road just got a lot more interesting. I'm reading the, uh, the text of the Sovereignty Act as it was tabled, and apparently it gives cabinet the ability to unilaterally give directions to provincial agencies, uh, universities, uh, all sorts of bodies uh, to disregard federal legislation if they feel that it encroaches on their jurisdiction. So she's effectively doing an end run around the legislature, uh, perhaps because she understands that the legislature is filled with people who don't support this sort of thing. So, uh, you know, if you thought that people were going to be able to tear their eyes away from this sideshow, uh, guess again, the sideshow just got sideshowier. Yeah, and they just added another ring to the three-ring circus, I guess, Bob. And when you consider what we just heard from Max and, you know, what kind of an end-around that they're proposing, have you ever seen anything like this? Well, I'm not I'm, – I, we may have seen something like yeah. this. I, I'm just not sure in terms of that legislation, but it's going to cause chaos because if the cabinet ministers can order universities or other institutions to disregard federal law, uh, they could end up having a fight with – the universities taking the government, provincial government to court because they don't want to uh, get into right. a, a fight with Ottawa because they're also getting funding from Ottawa, for example. Um, and, you know, this is the kind of thing that um, uh, the business community does not want to see. Right. Uh, Alberta's just come out of a pretty deep recession and they're, you know, they're getting uh, the oil businesses back. Uh, the the Alberta, uh, Calgary has come back, bounced back. And the business community has been saying in Alberta, look, we don't want to have any of these fights with Ottawa. We want to focus on the economy. This is going to hurt our reputation. It could infect investment. And as we heard from the NDP finance critic, uh, they're going to focus on not fighting with Ottawa, uh, not fighting with institutions within uh, Alberta, but on the economy. And as Bill Clinton said, it's the economy, stupid. That's what people care yeah. about. They want, they want to know that they've got get jobs. They want to know that... They, uh, they can improve their uh, cost of living with inflation. They want to know that government is focusing on jobs in the economy and inflation, not fighting. So if you're just joining us, we continue to wait for Premier Daniel Smith and Tyler Shandro, the Justice Minister, uh, to table this or to speak about, I, sh I should say, to reporters, this uh, Alberta Sovereignty Act, which is um, much renamed and, um, and much different, it seems. Uh, let's go back uh, to Max Fawcett for a moment. I wanted to ask you, you know, about picking these fights and, and in these court battles, I mean, what does this do for Alberta? Is, is this really a winner at the ballot box? I don't think it's a winner at the ballot box, and, and I don't think it's a winner in terms of, of what's best for the province. Those two things aren't always the same thing, but but they should be. Um, you know, as Bob mentioned, our economy right now is, is back on its feet. It's doing pretty well. We're attracting investment to, you know, into our, our film and television sector, into the tech industry. There's lots of good things going on in Alberta. 
And honestly, the last thing that anyone in the business community needs is a, a distraction like the, like the Sovereignty Act or, or the, you know, the other big distraction, which is the promise she made to, to incorporate vaccination status into the Human Rights Code here. Uh, she's not doing that, but apparently she's directly calling um, businesses and other institutions with vaccine mandates and, quote, encouraging them to drop them. I don't think the premier calling out people specifically and individually for their vaccine status is, is very good for business. I don't think that's what businesses want. I don't think it's what attracts tech workers and tech investment to the province, but it's what appeals to the, you know, one percent of the population here in Alberta that elected her as leader. And that is going to be what's what defines her strategy over the next six months. Can she keep those people happy enough without upsetting the rest of the province? And I honestly don't know the answer to that. As we continue to watch this, I'll just take a live look right now. Voting is underway in the Alberta legislature. This is first reading on the Alberta um, Sovereignty Within the United Canada Act. Uh, we are watching right now. Uh, we'll just listen in for a, a quick moment here. Total for the motion, 55. Total against, 22. That motion is carried in so order. The Honourable Premier has the call. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I move that the speech of Her Honour, the Honourable, the Lieutenant Governor, to this Assembly be taken into consideration Wednesday, November 30th, 2022. Motion as proposed by the Honourable Premier. All those in favour, please say aye. aye. Any opposed, please say no. In my opinion, the ayes have it. That motion is carried and so ordered. Members and invited guests, I would like to remind all of you that you are invited to attend a reception that is currently half being held. <laughs> in the legislative rotunda immediately following the closing ceremonies i hope that you'll enjoy us for some light reception for some light refreshments the government house leader uh, thank you mr speaker i move that the assembly stand adjourned until wednesday november 30th at 1:30 p.m having heard the motion as proposed by the honorable the government house leader all those in favor please say aye so there you have the Alberta legislature um, also breaking news. There will be refreshments served in Rotunda. Max Fawcett, do you have to get to that or can you stick with us? Alas, I'm here in Calgary, so, so no refreshments for me. Thank God you can stick with us then, and I'm sorry uh, that, that you can't get to those refreshments, but we are still waiting to hear from the Premier um, about this. Um, and let's come back to Bob for a second here. Um, I mean, as we continue to wait on hearing uh, some of the questions, what do you expect Daniel Smith to get as questions from some of the reporters there? Well, uh, hopefully the reporters have read the the, the uh, legislation, yeah. which you and I haven't read. So. Yeah, for sure. No, um, I know. We're at a bit of a disadvantage yeah. here. I get it. Uh, I mean, we only know what Max said about the fact that the cabinet ministers can order institutions to uh, oppose federal law. I don't know uh, other aspects of the of the law, but um, I think we're probably going to get what we heard from the NDP finance critic mm -hmm. is why are you bringing this uh, act in now when you should be focusing on the economy? Um, you know, what's the whole uh, like what when would you bring this in? Would it be on? Uh, you know, there's a federal government has taken action to um, uh, Reduce uh, fertilizers, right. which uh, farmers have complained about. Are you going to take action about that? What about oil and gas emissions? Uh, there is new firearms legislation. Will you oppose the federal government on the right. on the firearms legislation? So I imagine you're going to get those kind of questions from her. And 
presumably there's other aspects of the of the bill that you, since we you and I haven't seen it, yeah. we'll hear from reporters on that. Can we safely assume the federal government is sitting back and watching this and almost sitting back and saying, not much of a fight that we have to put up to this because it looks like it may be self-imploding? Well, I would be a little too early to make that kind of a judgment. I, I think their, their strategy is let's not get into a fight with Danielle Smith. That right. doesn't help us, and it may only help her mm-hmm. in uh, Alberta if she can rile up Albertans and say, look, at the, auto, uh, the feds are picking fights with us. That's not a good strategy to get in fights with them. So I think we're not going to see that. I think you're going to see them saying we, we want to get along with you. We want to negotiate. If they want to pick a fight uh, and – We'll, you know, we'll have to see you in the courts. Uh, yeah. uh, that's probably what they're going to do. But I also think the federal government will probably quietly uh, use its influence within the business community to get them to speak out against anything that could have a negative impact on uh, on relations between Ottawa, Ottawa and uh, Alberta, particularly if it's uh, the kind of I don't know what the legislation right. is, but particularly if it's going to affect business investment. Max, you're the only one that's seen the uh, the actual legislation, and I've tried to buy you some time. Did you do any more light reading between the time that we were in the legislature and now? To, are there any more nuggets that you can share with us? Yeah, I, I appreciate you buying me the time there. I studied up a little bit. Bob, Bob is exactly right. <laughs> um, the, the, the legislation, or at least the text around it, mentions the, the fight around fertilizers, oil and gas, firearms, um, and it also, of course, mentions the Emergencies Act. It, it tries to strike this sort of impossible position where um, cabinet ministers are tasked with pushing back against federal legislation and can give these sort of sweeping directives. Um, but also everything is is respectful of the Constitution, um, which it seems like, you know, a bit of an impossible job. And spare a thought for for. Oh, Max is frozen there. Yeah, so I think we lost him, but uh, it's a good point he's raising. Uh, that they are, those are the issues that I did raise mm-hmm. with you are actually in the in the uh, legislation. So these are uh, are hot button issues yeah. for uh, UPC, you, uh, uh, her supporters. Yeah. And, but and so she's put it in in the legislation. But okay, so what happens here? Is that it, they're, they're hot button issues for for her constituents, but it may not be for the larger uh, voting public in Alberta, yeah. and you know. So you have to be careful if you're only playing to your base all the time and you're a premier. Do you ha- are you going to get enough votes? And if you're only going to play to your base and not widen the circle, and you know the re- we saw that happen with the. Re- with the Republicans in mm-hmm. uh, the midterms, they played to a base that want, was election deniers, and they lost badly. Yeah. Uh, well, badly in the sense that they barely. It won wasn't the red wave rule. they expected. Right. We have Max back. Max, um, um, I just wanted to ask you to pick up where you had left off there. Yeah, I, I was simply saying we should we should spare a thought for a few of the cabinet ministers who have to enforce this uh, this new legislation. <laughs> Because four of them came out at a press conference in September and, and described the Sovereignty Act as a uh, quote fairy tale piece of legislation. Um, you know, Rajan Sani, who's the Minister of Trade, Immigration, and Multiculturalism, said we have a moral imperative to tell the truth about this very destructive piece of legislation. Well, now that moral imperative seems to have gone away because she'll be one of the people who has to, uh, you know, bring forward uh, essentially resolutions 
to the legislature um, around how to push back against federal intrusion, quote unquote, um, the legislature will get to vote on those resolutions and those resolutions will be non-binding advice to cabinet. So there's just a whole bunch of different things going on here around procedure, around how this is going to work. And, you know, if you're someone who was hoping for certainty, for stability, for business as usual, uh, boy, howdy, you didn't get it here. Yeah, no kidding. And again, remind viewers, we continue this special edition of Power Play. As we watch, you were seeing there in the bottom corner, still expecting Daniel Smith or Premier Daniel Smith to um, to meet with reporters and talk uh, about the act. Uh, there is the room where she normally meets uh, with reporters. Uh, Max, I wanted to ask you, though, about those uh, cabinet ministers who now have to go and do that sales job, that reluctant sales job. I mean, is there any chance for them to take a stance here? I think the moment for taking a stance has passed. Um, they, you know, they certainly had an opportunity, uh, you know, in the days and weeks after her victory to, to step aside, to, to say, no, thank you. I'm, I'm going to go do something else. You know, the, the age old move here is to take something in the private sector. They could have gone and worked for a bank, an oil and gas company, uh, you know, a think tank, you name it. And, and they chose to stick around. So they're on, the, they're on one of these two horses that the premier is riding at the same time. And, and they kind of have to stay on the saddle with her. Uh, whether they like it or not. And, you know, there, there was this widely circulated photo of the first cabinet retreat from a few weeks back. And, and quite a few of the cabinet ministers look less than impressed. But, um, you know, this is this is the ride they've chosen to take. And, and we guess we get to see how it plays out. And Bob, when you consider what we're seeing already from cabinet. Oh, sorry. Before that, let's go to Daniel Smith live now.